on this episode of the World Cup Project, I speak with Tyler Dunn of Banter FC about why the U.S. men's national team failed to reach the World Cup. We talk about how the sport has progressed in this country and how far we still need to go. Is he on Team Lawless or Team Twelman when it comes to what went wrong this campaign? We also discuss the consistent German national team and how their youth development has kept them on top for years and years. Can they go back to back? I'm your host, Mark Damon. Join me as we explore the mind of podcasting prodigy Tyler Dunn. It's the U.S. and Germany here on the World Cup Project. Tyler Dunn, welcome to the World Cup Project, my friend. Well, it's great to be part of the World Cup Project. We're going to have a lot of great conversations to talk about, about the World Cup, and maybe a certain team that didn't make the World Cup. Yeah, we're, and we're probably going to start with that, because it, it's it's so fun to sort of rehash as Americans how our national team fell so flat and so decisively and so, so terribly. But we're going to start mainly with talking about yourself for a minute. Now, you host a podcast. You, you're a fellow um, football podcaster. Mm-hmm. Describe to the listeners, maybe some of you, some of them are hearing you for the first time, how you got started, why you like football, when did you get into football, and how your whole kind of podcast thing came together. All right, we'll start with, uh, with the genesis of how I came up with the podcast. So, Originally, I was on radio at my college radio station, and I was interning at a couple of radio stations here in Chicago. And our te- my teacher at the time, she had produced uh, Pittsburgh Radio, Chicago Radio, Sports Radio. Uh, during the Pittsburgh Penguins time when they were winning championships, she produced them, WGN and the Cubs. She was a producer, and she comes up to me and she says, you need a show. And I was doing a, I was doing a music show, and I was doing a sports talk show. And I was like, man, I want to do something impressive. She's like, what do you mean? She's like, I could do the baseball, hockey, basketball. I can just regurgitate, you know, the necessary, you know, entities that you could see on ESPN or Fox Sports 1. I was like, I want to challenge myself. She's like, what do you mean? I was like, I want to talk about my favorite sport and I want to do it for an hour on radio. Monday nights from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock by myself, we would talk every major league of soccer and, you know, being a Manchester United fan, I know a lot of people at home are probably, you know, going, oh, God, he's a United fan. Uh, yeah, I was a United fan, but I had the best season to be a United fan, right? We had Louis Van Gaal as manager. He was so bad. I had the Leicester City story. I had PSG with Zlatan Ibrahimovic and an ongoing battle about how I was talking about how we can make French football better. And it was just kind of, you know, being a kid and, you know, loving soccer growing up and then. We had a, uh, we were on the radio, and then we transitioned on to uh, podcasting, and then I changed the name from my name, which is Tyler Dunn Soccer Show, because you're on Amer- you're on American radio, you need to call it soccer, uh, and I changed it to Banter FC, which is kind of a more insightful, comedic way of looking at soccer, where we laugh at things like you know a marijuana Fellaini scoring a backwards header to against Arsenal for his last ever game at Old Trafford for Arsene Wenger to having a serious in-depth conversation about, you know, why things like the U.S. soccer project was a failure. We have we have our comedy, we have our laughs. Like I always say, you come for the conversation and you leave with a few laughs. And I've listened to your show and it's fantastic because you're genuinely like a good radio personality. Like, 
understanding how to do radio, understanding how to do podcasting, it's a bit of an art. And a lot of us sort of learn along the way. Like, I, I like to think that I've gotten better at this over the year that I year or so that I've done it. Um, still have a way to go, but um, you, you have a good professional voice and you have that sort of flair for turning a, turning a phrase, which always helps, especially when you're previewing things or recapping things. But talk about your experience with the World Cup. And since this is the World Cup project, I like to ask people sort of what is their kind of first memory of soccer? And I think for a lot of people, it has to be the World Cup, especially in this country. Now, you can tell me that I'm wrong, but I feel like your first memory was probably international World Cup related as well. It, it is. I, my family's all Irish. I'm second generation Irish American. My mom is first generation. Half of her brothers and sisters were born in Ireland, and then she was born here in, in the States. And uh, it was the 2002 World Cup. I was eight years old. I was about to turn nine. Uh, Ireland had made it to the World Cup. It was Roy Keane and uh, Mick McCarthy and the fallout between the two of them. And Roy Keane is a devoted, loved, you know, Irish hero. You know, he played for United. Uh, he was the most famous Irish footballer. Uh, I believe Robbie King was in that team. Uh, John O'Shea wasn't in the team. It was Captain Kilban. Uh, we went to the round of 16 and we got eliminated on penalties to a certain España that had a Xavi a Raul, uh, a really good team in themselves. I mean, obviously they would go eight, eight years later to win a World Cup and, you know, six, you know, six years later to win the Euros. They weren't that team then, but they became a really good team. And watching Ireland make it to the round of 16 was like, oh my God, that was amazing. It wasn't the USA, you know, you live in an Irish household. It's, you know, we woke up for a, a World Cup in South Korea and Japan at like three o'clock in the morning to watch Ireland play. And it was just like, I didn't understand it. Or we would stay up late and you'd watch it. Or you'd wake up at like five o'clock in the morning. You didn't understand that stuff. Like that wasn't the norm for an American sports fan in America. But when the World Cup comes on, that's that's your first memory. And obviously my favorite World Cup will always be the 2006 World Cup watching Zidane grace the field for the last time. Obviously controversy at the end, but... Well, that was the World Cup that I remember the most, and that was the best World Cup. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It is, it's the best one, 2006, for me. And that's also a, a World Cup where the American national team didn't exactly do too well, but at least they were in that World Cup. So, as I smoothly transition us into our first topic, let's talk about United States soccer. Yep. And... I don't want to start with what went wrong, because I think that's almost, it, it's almost too complicated to go into it right off the bat. Yeah. Let's sort of talk about it as a concept in relationship to America as a whole. So, this is a sport that, for the better part of, I'd say from the 70s on, has sort of been a kind of a passing in and out fad in America. Like it's, a, it's an attraction. It's, it's an attraction. The, they tried to do the New York Cosmos with Pele in the 70s. That didn't really work. Um, the, the men's national team got hot in the 90s. The women's national team won the World Cup in 99. And at all of these points along the way, you thought eventually this game that everyone else in the world loves and is if you poll every country on earth 80 to 90% of them will say that soccer 
or football as their number one sport. But it just didn't seem to catch on. And now, I think, over the last five, ten years, you've seen it sort of really catch on in this country. Still sort of is a cult thing, but I'd say more um, pronounced than it was. So just sort of talk about, and I think us being the ages that we are, you being 24, maybe yep. 26, we can just sort of talk about what soccer in this country was when we were growing up, when we were really young, versus uh-huh. what it sort of is now and the fact that we can have, you know, soccer podcasts that have, uh, you know, have an audience. Yep. And just how kind of unfathomable that was 20 years ago. You know, it's crazy to watch the Genesis because, I mean, obviously the Premier League is keen. I mean, that's just how it is. I mean, when NBC did the bid to take the Premier League from Fox, that's when I really started to see a bigger uptake because Fox had a lot of the rights. They had the Premier League and they had Serie A. But I remember back in the day when they had it on there, it was on standard definition, right? We've had HD television for, what, 15 years now? But it took until... Uh, the, the rights went from Fox to to NBC for the Premier League to finally be shown in like high definition. And just the, the evolving of how the TV media side, because ESPN, they treated it like an attraction. They had one game a week, two games a week. They had a the 6.45 game central time, and then they had the uh, 1.45, 2 o'clock in the afternoon game on the, on the Mondays, you know. And those were special attractions, but now, like, how they've grown the game, it's the media companies that have treated it like a bigger deal, and the more money that, you know, those leagues have garnered, and obviously building up stars. I mean, you look at Wayne Rooney, for example, he's a global, national star. Even though Wayne Rooney wasn't the best of players, he was built up, and obviously even Nike himself, you know, based in Portland here in the United States, they made him a huge, you know, star. You look at Messi, you look at Ronaldo now, you look at Neymar. I mean, Neymar is a part of Jumpman, which is Michael Jordan's brand of Nike. You have, you know, Ronaldo, who's a part of Nike. They built them up as being world stars. And I think that's been one of the reasons why us as soccer fans, it's been growing and growing and growing. You mentioned, you know, us hosting the World Cup in 90, I think it was 96. 94. Or 94, which is a year before I was, a year after I was born. And then the 99 World Cup for women. You would have thought women's soccer would have progressed so much in this country but the women's national team players still want to play in European countries because the you know the pay here and the standards here are so bad. You're talking about a country that's won three women's World Cups and multiple Olympic gold medals, but they still get paid less than the men, and they don't want to play in their own home country. There's still ground for us to build on. There's still progress that needs to be built, but it is it is growing. I mean, you mentioned the media aspect with podcasting and everything and everybody being able to grow an audience, having that American, you know, view on a game that's been so heavily featured around the world. And we're getting there. It just takes time. And I'm hoping within the next 10 to 15 years, maybe, maybe with this next crop of players, maybe we could progress to a, you know, a quarterfinal of a World Cup or maybe even shock the world and make a semifinal. Be that team like a Colum- uh, Colombia, a team that, wow, they have Hamas Rodriguez, they have Ramadel Falcao, they have, you know, Juan Cordado. They have some really talented players. If they piece it together, they can make it to a World Cup final. Or a Belgium that's got a 
Romelu Lukaku, a Eden Hazard, a Van Vertonghen in defense, a Thibaut Courtois. You know, teams that, wow, they have some really good players. Could they piece it together and make a long run? Sooner rather than later, it will catch on. It's, you know, the American audience loves, you know, attractions. They love drama. You look at March Madness for the NCAA. You have a month that you build up a tournament and you get to the end of it. And those, you don't even have the best teams all the time, but they love that drama. And maybe it'll take one of those World Cups where the U.S. actually does really well and not Tim Howard making 16 saves against Belgium and setting a record for the most saves in a game. Rather than hopefully they're the team that has 16 shots on goal and they become the team that advances to a quarterfinal, a semifinal, maybe even make a final within the next 10 to 15 years. Well, and that obviously is the hope. But if we go into sort of the history of this, it's never really been the reality. You look at from 1954 to 1986, the United States did not make a World Cup. They finished third in the first World Cup in 1930, by the way. Very different competition. Very, very sort of the game was different back then. The, the way that the the way the way the tournament worked was different. All that stuff. But for a good span of about thirty years, the United States was essentially a non-entity in football. And you qualify in nineteen ninety. You go to the group stage, and then in nineteen ninety four, the United States gets the World Cup, and it's it's really the first time where I think U.S. soccer had a chance to sort of uh, show itself on any sort of world stage, and I think they had a good accounting for themselves. They got through their group. They beat Colombia in that um, in that famous game, and I think I think we know what game that was. That was the game against Colombia, where um, you had the own goal. Oh, that got wait, them. That let's not, let's not talk about that kind of stuff. That's bad stuff to talk about. Yeah, but you, you know that that was a that was an interesting moment in the, the history of the sport that the United States was kind of a part of. They got into the round of 16 and they lost to Brazil. And there's no shame in losing to Brazil in a round of 16. Brazil would go on to win that World Cup. 98 they got to the group stage in 2002. That was the year you talk about when you were watching Ireland, but the United States puts their best performance in a modern world cup they get to the quarterfinals yep and that was the team that was led by bruce arena as coach at that point i think soccer in this country was still um it was still an attraction as you're calling it. and i think that's a good way to describe it as an attraction hold on, hold on the best club coach in u.s soccer was bob bradley at that time just gonna put that out there for the chicago fire just gonna put that out there a little little tidbit yes and speaking of Bob Bradley, he would then go on to coach future United States uh, national teams. He would coach that team in 2010, where they beat Algeria on the Landon Donovan goal, sneak into the round of 16. Now, I feel like United States soccer during this time, 02 to 2014, have in certain ways been lucky to get as far as they have in the sense that there's a lot of things that sort of happened. You talk about 2010, when you had that Joe Hart just howler of a no, howler of a play. That if that doesn't happen, the United States aren't going to the round of 16 in 2010. They just aren't. You have Mark, the, yeah. Mark, it's Robert Green. You can't give Joe Hart the credit, man. You can't give Joe Hart the credit for that bad one. I can't? No, it was Robert Green. Robert what, Green. What, yeah. It was another West Ham goalkeeper at the time. 
I, I, can't, I can't just assume that it was Joe Hart. Just for the story, can we have it be uh, Joe Hart? Of course. I'll edit that out. Well, let's edit this part in. It was Joe Hart, 2010. He let the ball go. It was go Joe Hart. It was all Joe Hart's fault. Yep. He made Clint Dempsey famous, another yes. football player and a London club player at the time. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. That. Thank you for that correction. But just sort of talk about that time period a little bit and sort of the stars of that time and why you think um, – I guess – do you kind of go with my premise that U.S. soccer – got a little bit lucky in that time period to kind of be where they were. They were fortunate, right? Because you had some stars that were playing abroad. We had some name caliber players, as I mentioned, with Clint Dempsey. He's playing in England. You have Landon Donovan that's playing here, but he's going on loan for for three months at a time, going to Bayern Munich, Everton, you know, playing abroad, being good enough. This was at the time where Landon Donovan was considered you know, by a lot of Americans, oh, he's good enough, he should be playing in the Premier League, oh, he should be playing in the Bundesliga, and he did, he got an opportunity to play for Bayern Munich, a lot of people don't realize that, which is a really, really cool feat, especially at that time, and it was more that the countries around us were not as good as we were, obviously within the last eight years, we're in 2018, from 2010 to 2018, the countries like Honduras, have caught up. The countries like Costa Rica have caught up. Kaylor Navas, for all of his faults and all of his calamities, is going to a third consecutive Champions League final and will be probably picking up his third Champions League trophy in his career. That is a very, very talented player. You know, we talk about the U.S. and having really good, talented goalkeepers. They've never produced a goalkeeper of Kaylor Navas's, you know, track record of success. And that's a fact. Those countries caught up. And what did they use? They used Major League Soccer as a place to build up their talent. And you look at the Honduran players with, you know, Houston Dynamo, who made it to a Western Conference final last year. You look at some of the top clubs in MLS. They use Conky Calf talent. It isn't all USA players, which is one of the things that saw other clubs progress. That is what is making. American soccer not progress because their players are playing abroad, but they're not playing. Hmm. Even though MLS is a, a f- inferior league to some of those European leagues, they're playing week in and week out. And when the games mattered, their management and their players got the job done. And that's why those clubs in those countries have caught up to American soccer. Yeah, and that's a good point to make. And we'll, we'll get back to that point as well. But in 2011, the United States hired Jurgen Klinsmann, which is was a very non-United States move to make. But because I thought it was a good move, I, I honestly think that was a good move. And not it, yeah. manager, but as his whole job personification of what he had to do, I thought he was he's been successful, especially with the aftermath of what's gone after him. Yeah, and it was also, and I want to point out, a very un-American sort of thing to do at that point, because for the most part, American um, football had been sort of kept in-house. You rarely sort of saw international managers, especially with the capabilities of Jürgen Klinsmann. Here's a guy that coached the German national team to a World Cup semifinal. He coached at Bayern Munich, was obviously one of the best players in the world in his, um, in his time. And he comes in with a very sort of different outlook than any sort of American coach would have sort of had. 
And there's obviously was that tension the entire time that he was the coach. In, mm-hmm. in that, I think he was, for the first time, I think somebody was telling the people that ran United States soccer that we're not that good. We're not where we really need to be. I have to do some really extensive changes to the way that the United States does things. And I feel like Jurgen Klinsmann, if nothing else, was always sort of a realist about where U.S. soccer was. And I think that there were a lot of people, especially U.S. soccer fans, who felt that Jurgen sort of sold the talent that the United States had short in sort of a very European elitist kind of way. And it sort of always was that friction between the fan base and the uh, people that ran U.S. soccer and what Jurgen Klinsmann sort of saw, I think, is a long-term build. And I would say the United States got their best results in their history when it came to what type of teams they were playing under Jurgen Klinsmann. But talk about that Jurgen Klinsmann time, and you already started talking about how you liked it. I tended to like Klinsmann, too. But just again, go into that a little bit, and what and why that tension was always there. I kind of laid it out a little bit, but I kind of want you to expand on it. All right. One thing people need to realize with Jurgen Klinsmann is that he isn't a good tactical manager. Like you're not hiring him to be, you know, you know Maximilian Allegri. He wasn't that guy, which is a very known thing. Philip Lahm, who uh, later would win a World Cup and be managed for by. Jurgen Klinsmann in 2006 and in his time with Bayern Munich would say he would make the team and he would tell the players to go out there and figure it out themselves, right? Obviously, you can't do that with the U.S. men's national team because not every player is technically you know, savvy enough to, okay, this is what we got to play against and this is how we got to do it. He was more of a, I'm going to set up a team, I know what we need to do. And he was a really good recruiter, right? That was what made Jurgen Klinsmann very well. He got John Anthony Brooks, which has been our best center back, one fit since he's came into the fold, right? He's better than Jeff Cameron. He's better than, you know, you know, Guzzi and, Bez, you know, Beasler and, you know, Omar Gonzalez. You know, they're not very good, talented players that he had at his disposal. So what did he do? He used people's bloodlines to attract them to the national team. Jermaine Jones, for all of his faults and all of his, you know, ad, you know his adversities and what he said, he played in a Champions League semifinal for Schalke. Never was going to be kept by Germany. Liked Jurgen Klinsmann growing up. Loved him for Germany. Had American bloodlines. What does he do? He makes a swap. Julian Green was another one. He was touted to be the next best thing in German football. And we thought we had a coup. Obviously, it didn't work out. You know, we all expected him to be what Christian Pulisic is. But obviously, Julian Green being at Bayern Munich, injury problems and not being German and not being maybe as talented as he thought he was fall flat on his face four years ago. And Klinsman was a very, very good recruiter. And in that time, he was a very realistic person. He said, yeah, we're not good enough. You know, if we're going to make it to the World Cup. Obviously, that was the expectation. He won a Gold Cup. He didn't win a lot of the Gold Cups, which is some something very silly that that was always the expectation was to win this really farce of a tournament called the CONCACAF Gold Cup, which is just all the CONCACAF teams and, you know, you know, Belize would be in the tournament, and Mexico and USA would be able to beat a team from you know the Caribbean seven nothing for like you know to make money. That was that's the time we're talking about. And Jurgen Klinsmann did a good job with what he had. And obviously, he would have done a better job than Bruce Arena. 
And we'll get to Bruce Arena's portion of the blame and what he did to make what U.S. soccer was and why we're in the situation we're currently in on the outside looking in. Like many powerful, you know, countries like Italy and the Netherlands missing out on the World Cup. But our missing of the World Cup is much bigger deal because we're a population of 330 million people. There's no reason we should have missed the World Cup. But back under Jurgen Klinsmann, he did everything you needed to do. He recruited really well. He built up a really good team. We made it to the round of 16 against Belgium. He set up a team. They didn't lose badly. Obviously, they would go on to lose to Belgium. But he got through the group of death, right? It was Germany. It was Ghana, the team that eliminated the USA in two consecutive World Cups. And a team that would go on, obviously, to win the World Cup was Germany in 2014. He got them through the group as runners-up. He won his first game. Yeah. He brought against Portugal and Ronaldo. He lost his last game against Germany, but everybody lost against yeah, Germany. Well, remember that that game too. That that the United States actually I think outplayed Portugal in that game. Yes, they they, they only Ronaldo goal in the last two minutes that Yeah. A great cross from Ricardo Quaresma, which was like a world class ball, and Ronaldo had a diving header and put it past him. I mean, they should have won that game. They yeah. were he should have won the game. But obviously, th- there's a reason why Portugal would go on to win the 2016 World Cup is because... Okay, so you're, they, in the European uh, Championship. European Championship, you are correct. Yeah. They, they showed a grittiness and a determination, which is one of the reasons why they would go on to win that 2016 World Cup. And also having Ronaldo doesn't you know hurt your causes as well when he gets his opportunities to pounce, which he does on very, very frequent occasions. And... And I think that as a, I think a team like the United States, a national team like the United States, we talk about the population, but it, in general, you would call them a middle of the road uh, national team. I wouldn't call them, a, let's say they're a top 30 national team in the world. Yep, that should be a, that should be a fair assessment yeah, of About what? top 30. Yeah. Now, when you're not top 10 or you're not top 15, you have to have a qualification plan and you you go into the hex which is the um the six team uh qualification final the way that the CONCACAF determines their world cup uh teams and they get three in straight and then one goes into a in the fourth place team goes into a qualifying tie against the the asian federation yeah now in essence, this uh, the way that the hex is designed is to get Mexico and the United States into the World Cup as easily as humanly possible. Yeah, basically. That's the whole point of the hex. Like, the United States had to completely fall on its face to not qualify for even that fourth place spot. And you look at where they what, how they went into that and i really do feel like they thought that they had already qualified i don't think they thought about okay we need to get this amount of points we need to we need to at very minimum draw at home against mexico we have to draw on the road against costa rica getting the amount of points they need let's say that number is 8 or 9 or whatever the number happens to be I when you're like, game, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just win your home games. It's exactly like qualifying for the Champions League. Yeah, you know, outstage. Win your home games, draw away from home. You're through to the next round. And I don't think they had that plan. And I think that 
the United States thought that they were going to qualify pretty much by birthright at that point. And you lose the first game at home to Mexico. You lose the second game on the road to Costa Rica. And now you panic. And clearly the United States panics here. They fire Jurgen Klinsmann and they hire Bruce Arena, which is, again, it's, I kind of, uh, equate it to when you remember when the Redskins hired uh, Dan, hired uh, Joe Gibbs. Yep. The set not the first time they hired Joe Gibbs, but the second time they hired Joe Gibbs. Yes. And it's like they're they're expecting this guy to come back, bring back the magic. He knows the players, and he's gonna restore it, and he's gonna make sure that they don't not they don't miss the World Cup. Uh-huh. And I felt like it was such a it was such a forbearing hire in that. You, you go back to the well and you go to a guy that's been sort of comfortably in MLS. He's not really being challenged. And he comes in with the same ideas he had before in a sport that's drastically changed in a CONCACAF that's much better than it was. And it, I, I equate it to a fool's errand. I think it was doomed to fail from the start once they panicked and went with Bruce Arena. Oh, it was a, definitely a panic hire. They they thought they were hiring the best American coach, and this is our guy. He's won our domestic league. He's been the best one. He's coached the best team. All the shenanigans that go with it. But here's the problem. You mentioned it. He was depending on MLS players to get the job done against players that most of those American players were facing week in and week out. You have Jeff Cameron at home. Jeff Cameron, who is playing in the Premier League for Stoke City, right? And a team, a guy that has experience at World Cups, starting World Cups, playing in big matches in England, he doesn't play. You're telling me that Omar Gonzalez should be starting in a in a win, win, and you go to the World Cup, lose or draw, you miss the World Cup uh, situation, and you tell me you want to put players that play in far inferior leagues than a a guy like Jeff Cameron who who was fit, who was playing good football at the time doesn't play him. He depended on the players in MLS. He put way too much stock into the MLS stock. And guess what happened? They fell on their face because he was a dinosaur. It's like Arsene Wenger. Your tactics were very successful in 2006. Everybody caught up ever since. And look at Arsenal in the past 12 years. Yeah. And we, we, we kind of talk about that uh, Trinidad and Tobago game as the as probably the low point in United States soccer history, and that all they have to do is beat this team that doesn't beat anyone. Yep. And they go in, they look, for the first half, they look like they're dazed and out of it. They look shell-shocked. They look nervous. There's a amazing near-the-half-line goal, or near the, near the, a really just incredible goal to make it 2-0 to Trinidad and Tobago. The first goal, you could say, was maybe a mistake by Tim Howard. And all of a sudden, even though you lose this game, they still have to have two other results go against you. Those two results go against you. And in the span of about 30 set, thirty minutes or so, you go from thinking you're going to be in the World Cup to being completely and totally out of it. Yep. And at that moment, I think two camps begin to form. And for the sake of this, I'll name the two camps. There's either the Taylor Twelman camp or the Alexi Lawless camp. Now, in the Taylor Twelman camp, you have this idea that United States soccer is not where it needs to be, that it is not making the progress necessary to 
move it forward and to evolve it to a point where it can be competitive around the around the world and in international competitions. So, in the Twelman camp, these losses are are uh, they're the symptoms of the actual problem, as opposed to the Alexi Lawless camp, which is more United States soccer is fine, you know. The, the, they're still building it very well. The issue is not with the structural uh, integrity of U.S. soccer. It's with the specific players and the coach and their failure to perform when they needed to perform. In other words, sort of a blip on the map as opposed to something more systemic. Do you fall into the Taylor Twelman camp or do you fall into the Alexi Lawless camp? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest here, guys. I hate Alexi Lawless with a burning passion. So I kind of agree with Alexi and I kind of agree with Taylor. Taylor is right that there hasn't been enough progress, right? Well, we shouldn't be dependent on an 18-year-old who has been playing club football for less than two years to be a focal point in our team, and that's what happened. Christian Pulisic should not be playing the number 10 position and scoring 70% or assisting 70% of the goals scored by the United States men's national team. There was a leadership issue on the field, and there was a leadership issue with management, and there was no connection. There was divided camps. Everybody knows that Jermaine Jones came out and blasted Bruce Arena. The players that played in Europe blasted Bruce Arena, and now it's a fact. It's not a blip. The fact that you're given six games to qualify for the World Cup and you missed the World Cup, that isn't a blip. That is a fact that the other teams are, like I mentioned earlier, the other teams caught up. And they used our domestically, even though I say it is inferior, but if all of our American stars like Josie Altador and Michael Bradley are coming back and playing in the said league, and the players from Costa Rica and the players from Honduras and the players from Mexico are playing in this said league, and you have players playing in better leagues abroad, and those players are having a big impact on those smaller countries, and we're not getting that same impact, that's an issue, right? So, like I mentioned, Kaylor Navas. You look at Chicharito Javier Hernandez. You look at, you know, Lozano for PSV. Those are top quality talents. You look at, you know, possibly for Jamaica, Leon Bailey's coming. That could be a huge problem for the United States in the next qualification. If Jamaica can get Leon Bailey on board, that team who's made it to semifinals like CONCACAF, you know, championship games in the Gold Cup, that could be an issue for the US, United States national team. I don't think progress has been made adequately. I do think it's kind of a, a blip. And Alexi's, you know, it was kind of a blip. We've never seen it before. But I more lean towards Taylor than I do lean against Alexi. Because Alexi wants to make sure that it's not his buddy's fault. Bruce Arena, who's, because he's a pro MLS guy. Alexi is. He's all MLS. This is our soccer. Our soccer's the best thing ever. This is the same guy that thinks Mo Salah is better than Lionel Messi right now. That yeah. should tell you his opinion is. Not a good one. Yeah, and I I tend to believe that the biggest issue that U.S. soccer has is Arrogant. that it does not have a proper um, it does not have a proper opinion of itself, and I feel like be and, and this is um, and we'll have a show about England in a couple of episodes or so. Uh, I, I feel, feel like the United States has that sort of English mentality since, for the most part, that's what Americans watch. Americans watch 
the Premier okay. League, and sometimes they'll watch Messi and Ronaldo play. That's yep. really about it. Like, yep. there are very few uh, American football fans that are educated into, okay, here's what Serie A looks like, here's what the French League looks like. You know, it, it's not that way. They're watching MLS and they're watching the Premier League. Yep. And I think they've taken some of that English, I wouldn't call it snobbery, but this sort of idea that... It's like, you know how the older English people think, like, they look at Americans and they look at, like, countries in Africa and they think it, they, that that's theirs? Yeah. It's the Britannia feeling. It's like, they think they're still the conquerors, but in reality, they're just a tiny little island and everybody that they had control over is breaking free of them. And the Britannia feeling isn't there anymore. Yeah, and I, I draw to it. I draw more of it to a soccer perspective in that England believes that they are better than they are because they're England. And I feel like the United States got ahead of themselves. And this is where the friction happened with Klinsmann, which is Jurgen Klinsmann was not compromising what he wanted to do when it came to building that team, and he built that team. And his goal eventually was to build that team through youth. And yep. the German, the semi-German internationals and Pulisic eventually, there was a clear path for what Jurgen Klinsmann wanted to do on the developmental side. The uh-huh. issue came when the United States abandoned that and they wanted the quick MLS Bruce Arena fix, yep. which is, again, they couldn't imagine this bad thing happening to them. They by all by all costs wanted to make it to the World Cup as opposed to sort of staying with the plan. And eventually they got nothing. They didn't get any they're not getting the benefits of what Klinsman did to the extent that they should when yep. it came to player development. And they're not getting the World Cup either. So I think you get to this point where United States soccer has to completely sort of adjust their outlook on things and Uh figure out a way to develop the six to seven players that are going to be their backbone and then get about 20 to 25 players in the pool underneath that, that you can build around, that you can plug into positions that can give you some depth, that you can get back to a World Cup and you can get back to it in 2022. All while doing that, you're restructuring the entire way that you scout youth players. Because I, I think, honestly, it sucks. Because yep. there's not enough um, investment at that level to finding players young, finding players that maybe don't have the financial um, the financial wherewithal, the financial ability to sort of pay for U.S. soccer. Like... Being a good U.S. soccer player should not be as hard as it is to become a good U.S. lacrosse player. Like, the the money should not be equal in those two. It should be very easy for the U.S. to find young talent, pay for what, you know, pay for their training, pay for their lodging, you know, and get them into a place where they're getting, you know, good training, the, uh, the opportunity to play abroad. Not necessarily that they'll take it, but the opportunity to go if they want to go the Pulisic route or if they want to go to college. They can go to college. There's no problem with that. It's just you need that financial backing for all levels of the game and 
for players that may ne- not necessarily have the money or the or the means to do so. And if they can do that, they'll be back to being a consistent national team. But if the if the fix is going to be okay, what's our who's our new coach? And there's no sort of vision beyond that. That is a that's a poor you know that's a poor excuse for a plan because it isn't one. And that's the whole thing with Bruce Arena. Bruce Arena wasn't a plan. Bruce Arena was a band aid. And yep. You should never be trying to get band-aids to fix these problems when you need to fix the open gaping wound. Uh-huh. And I felt like U.S. soccer just shot itself in the foot with this whole thing. I, I generally do. I'm in the middle between where Lawless and Twelman are, but the way they do youth investment just completely has to change. Well, the way that Jurgen Klinsmann was trying to build it, and I know we're going to talk Germany sooner rather than later, was trying to go off the German model, which was... They looked at themselves in the mirror and said, we're not building enough stars. We need to invest in our youth academy, right? That was a big emphasis on Germany. And what happened? In that time, in a 16-year gap, they went on to win a World Cup in that time, right? And they have obviously one of the most popular national teams in the world. Uh, the German League, which is some, a league I do thoroughly love watching, uh, they have one of the best teams in the world that makes it to the semifinals and the finals of Champions Leagues that's built on German talent that play on the national team, but they have players that play abroad. One of the issues I do think that did hurt the U.S. men's national team, and I hate saying it, is that the U.S. tried so hard to try to make MLS more relevant and try to make it a more popular league than it was by taking American stars out of bigger leagues abroad and giving them big paychecks. Michael Bradley has never reached the levels as he had when he was at Roma since he joined Toronto FC. It's that player that he placed, you know, D. Rossi from the Roma team. That player has not been seen ever since he came back to Toronto FC. Josie Altidore, once very, very good in the Everdees. Came back to MLS, and it isn't that big of a challenge for him. Sometimes you need to pl- go places where you're going to be challenged, and that's the only place you can develop and become better. I'm, you, everyone's always told if you're the best player on the team, you need to leave that team and join a different team because there's no way you can improve. And the U.S. men's national team peaked, and in that in that process, being MLS heavy, and as you mentioned. Having a band-aid for a gash with Bruce Arenas, he was reliant on that MLS talent because that was the only talent that he was really watching because that's where he was managing. That also shows you how far behind he was in the way of being a manager. He should have been watching those players abroad, but he wasn't because he didn't care about those players abroad. And he was more dependent on your Michael Bradleys and your Josie Altidores in MLS than he was with your players abroad, and that was what, you know, ultimately saw the U.S. men's national team fail. And I do think MLS a contributing factor to our failure because we took stars that shouldn't be coming to MLS, and we took them, and obviously it negatively affected us. Yeah, and this is a good point to transition over to that um, to that German national team. Uh-huh. And we're going to talk about and. I would say the the word that always comes to my mind when we're talking about Germany is consistency. And you look at their history. More times than not, they are in the quarterfinals or the semifinals or the finals or they're winning the damn thing. Mm 
And that goes from basically the 1950s on. There's only one time in the history of the German national team since 1950 where they did not at least make the quarterfinals, and that was in 1978. I would say it's them or Brazil. And I would say I think when it comes to just pure consistency of skill and talent, I would say Germany is slightly above Brazil in that... um, in that uh, in that identity, in that sort of idea. Now, like from like from one twenty three, right? What? Like from consistency from like player one from player twenty three, they consistently have better players. Yes, and it's consistently, like they, yeah, twenty three for Germany is better than player twenty three for Brazil. Yes, I would say that's true. But yep. let's sort of start it with a more broad perspective, and that would be talking about. Germany and its footballing culture. Now, while also following, also being a Manchester United fan and following MLS, you're also a um, strong follower of the Bundesliga as well. Yes, and I am. you're also a Dortmund fan to that extent. Oh, so, I wouldn't say I'm a Dortmund fan. I'm more of a, uh, per se, I, I criticize and I, I give a, a realistic view to help Americans understand what's going on with their favorite American footballer. That's I wouldn't say I'm a, Dor- I'm a Manchester United fan, but I follow Dortmund just because obviously they have our American hero. So it, it's easy to follow him and try to give a realistic view on Bruce Dortmund, which is, let me tell you, they've been a hot, they've been a hot mess all season. Yes. So either way, you're qualified to talk about this a bit. So of just course. talk about Germany's football culture for just a, oh. just a little bit, just what it, what it entails and, Sort of the legend of it and how it's... Um... It's incredible. Yeah, go ahead. It is absolutely incredible. Their footballing culture is... It's fan first. It's not ownership and it's not sponsor. It's not monetary. It's for the fans. They make it affordable. To see Bayern Munich for a season ticket is $96 euro. To see Bayern Munich play in their competitions for a season ticket is 96 euros. They have a system and a way to make the games affordable, not only to fans, but to families. Not just to the singular fan, but to families. And that is what builds up good soccer culture, is giving an opportunity to families to be able to bring their kids to games and to entertain them. And there is a team called RB Leipzig, which is Ball Sports, but it's actually Red Bull that owns them. And Clubs like that and Wolfsburg, which also has Volkswagen as a major sponsor, those teams and those fan groups are very, very mutually hated by the rest of the fans because they're seen as big business coming into the Bundesliga, and they are against that. Whenever Bayern Munich go play abroad, like against Arsenal the Champions League, they would get charged 100, you know, 100 pounds for a ticket, and Bayern Munich would subsidize them the cost of what a ticket would actually cost if they were going to the Allianz Arena for this side match because they put the fan first and that's what makes the culture and that's why the game is so popular there is that it's affordable it is family first and it's super passionate because it allows fans to be passionate and allows fans to go out and enjoy themselves in a safe environment and it's one of the better leagues in the world for that you know everybody knows england everybody knows about la liga everybody knows about the french league but the bundesliga from top to bottom 
not quality wise because uh, sometimes the league does lack a little quality this year would be a great example of the league being on a down year for you know top to bottom uh separating themselves between Bayern and you know the rest but the fans are always there always selling out passionate amazing family friendly and that's what the culture is built on and that's why the national team has been successful because not only are the kids getting involved that means they're joining soccer groups and they're joining you know football clubs and they can build from the smaller clubs because you look at the 2010 world cup you know Joachim Lowe went there with an idea of being very youthful there are players that played for smaller clubs like Hamburg and Werder Bremen that would end up playing for Real Madrid and Bayern Munich they went with a youthful approach, but those youthful players ended up playing for Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Arsenal, top-level players. Manuel Neuer, Sammy Kadira, Mesut Ertzel, Jerome Boateng. Those are players that weren't playing for Juventus and Bayern Munich, respectively, and Arsenal. They were playing for Werder Bremen, Hamburg, Bayern Leverkusen. They went with a youthful approach and look at where their talents were from 2010 to 2018. They grew because they gave kids opportunities. It is affordable, and it allowed those players to be able to get it there on the ground floor. And obviously, the World Cup was also very affordable in 2000, you know, 2006 and hosting the World Cup, which was also one of the reasons why it blossomed so much as well when they changed their system to make it more towards the fans and more towards their youth development as well. That's why they're such a standard bearer for football is because they – always want to put youth first and they always go back to their culture which is youth first that's why you look at teams like Bayern Munich and you look at you know Borussia Dortmund they will give young players opportunities Christian Pulisic he is an American 18 years old he's playing for his national team and Dortmund you know uh, Jordan Sancho he was for Manchester City English player he makes a move to Borussia Dortmund he gets the seven jersey and he makes an impact it's players like that that are having impacts in this league and 18 year olds there's a guy that plays for hamburg his name is arp he's 17 years old he had to get a a, a uh he played a friday game and they had to get him a uh a to play on a week on a friday night because the working age is you know 18 years old you can't work past a certain time and they obviously professional footballers play later at night it's just the culture and how things are and it's one of the best cultures around the world for any sport it's amazing. It's incredible what they do. And I wish the Americans could uh, stop looking at the monetary ways of trying to build their soccer and go for the family-friendly stuff. But it will never happen here. Talk, in that 2010 team, in that 2010 team that you're talking about, every single player, every single one played for a German Bundesliga team. Manuel Neuer was playing for Schalke at the time. Sammy Kadira was playing for Stuttgart. Mesut Ozil was playing for Werder Bremen. Um, Podolski was playing for Köln. Um, Philip Lahm was playing for Bayern Munich. Mertesacker, Werder Bremen. Tony Kroos, Bayer Leverkusen. So on and so on and so forth. And with that sort of youth development, and I think that's where, and you were sort of, uh, alluding to it and talking about it, but I want you to go into more detail sort of on how Germany, maybe more than any other country, I think you look at the, the polar opposites of this, of this would be France, in the yep. sense that most of the time, if you're a good French player, you're leaving France 
by the time you're 23 years old. Yep. And you're in either England or you're in Germany or you're in Spain. Germ- the French- France is just sort of an export league. They find great talent, but they're not necessarily developers of that talent. They're more sort of, because the financial, um, because of the way that the Liga finances worked, a lot of those teams didn't necessarily make a bunch of money. So the best way you could to make you could make money and stay, you know, stay salient is to um, transfer your players out. Germany, it's different. A lot of those teams in the Bundesliga have um, entrenched fan bases that keep the clubs profitable. Yep. And they don't sell their players outside of the country for the most part when they're young. They develop them. And a lot of the times you'll see them go either to Dortmund or Bayern. Yep. And it's just, it's a very different idea of how to develop youth and what that youth is being developed for. Again, the main difference being that in France, that youth is being developed to sort of sell, as opposed to in Germany, where that youth is more developed to keep it in and keep the league sort of strong. Which is one of the funnier things. You'll enjoy this. I mean, as a fan of PSG, you guys have faced off against uh, Bayern Munich quite often. Bayern Munich are also very fortunate that clubs in Germany are not as smart with player contracts. There's a player named Leon Goretzka who plays for the second best team in the Bundesliga for Schalke. He would probably be worth 50 to 60 million if he was on a contract. But Schalke played the long game and thought, oh, he'll stay with us. They're going to lose two of their best players this upcoming year on contracts for free because they're not smart enough to sign down players. That's why Bayern Munich have always been plentiful when it comes to signing German talent is because their players understand they'll get a great signing bonus and they can wind down a contract and they can end up going to Bayern Munich and making more money. Yeah. And it happens. And it happens so often. I mean, the only players they really got to spend money on are the foreign players, which is Javi Garcia, which I think is their one of their most expensive players. And, you know, Quarantine Talisto, which is a French player who came from Lyon, who was the best player against uh, Real Madrid, by the way, in the center of the park. Just putting that out there. Uh, over a Tiago of Barcelona youth product who you would have thought would have shined at the Bernabeu, but uh, cowered in a shell. But that's what they do. And uh, you look at this 2010 team, as you mentioned, they had some veteran leadership. You know, you have Mirsa Klosa, but it was a breakout tournament of one Thomas Mueller. Thomas Mueller, I, we didn't even mention him originally when I was talking about players that were playing for the smaller teams. You know, Tony Crow at Leverkusen at the time. You mentioned Sammy Kadira. He was playing for Stuttgart. Uh, you know, these are players that come out and are playing within the league. Obviously, Tony Kroos would end up leaving Bayern Munich to go to Real Madrid. But that is a rarity. Bayern don't usually lose players to the other big clubs. It doesn't happen. Like, in the last 10 years, I think the only two players I think that have left Bayern Munich for a top, you know, a top Europe is Owen Hargreaves and Tony Kroos. And they are both central midfielders. One worked out for the one team, and the other one has been in a, was an absolute failure in Owen Hargreaves to Manchester United. But that's what they do. There was an emphasis on youth. They had Mesut Ozil, who was 21 years old, and you have Tony Kroos that was 21, and you have Thomas Mueller that was 20, and you had a team that was so young in age that had such upside talent that they were building a core that they could take to the next World Cup as well. And most of those players in four years became 
world-class players and superstars from being hopeful prospects to being week-in, week-out starters for their respective clubs. I mean, you look at Mesut he plays for Real Madrid. You go on and play for Real Madrid. You know, Jerome Boateng goes and becomes one of the best center backs in the world at Bayern. Obviously, he becomes a viral meme because of Lionel Messi. And then you have Philip Lump, who we haven't even mentioned, one of the best German players of this century. They built up youthful players, and they built up an ideology. We want to build a core. This is going to be our core. As you mentioned, these are seven to eight guys that we know are going to be good. We know they're going to be in this lineup. And if someone gets good in the next World Cup, we'll slot them in. A Marco Royce, for example, was that guy. A Mauro Goethe was one of those guys that became a, a top-class player in that time. Those are the kind of players. You have your core players, and then you want to build up new youthful players and bring them in. It's just the basic wrestling concept. You have the superstar, but you want to have the star for tomorrow right on the shoulder once that guy isn't good enough anymore. Yes. And just to go back into history, just to give a little more historical reference... England are the second most successful national team when it comes to the World Cup. Brazil has five World Cup victories, and Germany has four. But I would say, in general, you'd say it's 1A and 1B. Pick which one you pick which one you think is better. You're not really wrong either way. They won in 54, and um, they won that in Switzerland. That was their first World Cup victory. They won in 1974. That was the squad led by Franz Beckenbauer. They won that World Cup in West Germany. That was when it was the um, that is when it was the West Germans. And they also won this World Cup in 1990. That was a Jurgen Klinsmann-led team. Yep. And they won it obviously in 2014. And I think you go to that 2014 World Cup. And I, I, I do find it, you know, to take a side detour, yep. just to take a side detour for a minute, I find it amazing that Germany, and yes, this is a very much a side detour, but to rebuild after World War II, have your country essentially split in half, obviously after the Russians occupied the east part of Germany and the Americans occupied the west part of Germany when both uh, conquering armies met basically in the middle. They met at Berlin. Berlin gets split into east and west Berlin, which is inside actually East Berlin. So if you look at a map, you have East Berlin, you have West Berlin and East Berlin. Berlin is. Smack dab in the middle of East Berlin, of East Germany, and it's a lot of East and West. So in the middle of East Germany is Berlin, which is then also split in half into West Berlin and East Berlin. And with basically your whole economy destroyed and the country cut into half, you win the World Cup nine years later. And have not looked back since. I mean, well, not- here's the crazier thing: in that in that time that they were split up, the East Germans, there were some really good soccer teams. There was a team called Dynamo Dresden, which was like the Leeds United of the '70s in German football. They in East Germany, they were they one of the best teams. They went, they played in European cups, and uh, they won. I think seven. I think they won like seven German titles. They were one of the 
you know, premier teams in the, you know, East German folklords, uh, their big rival RB Leipzig and, you know, Saxony. And if you could have combined the talents, it's like that was the conversation of what if Ireland just became one team in North and, and the Republic, they would make the World Cup every single year. And look in that time in the 70s when East German football was really, really good. And, you know, Dinamo was was the Bayern Munich of the 70s in East Germany. Obviously, politics played a part in, you know, bringing Berlin back to the fold and making Berlin clubs be better. And, you know, wanting to have an emphasis on the capital was one of the reasons what happened with the fall of, you know, the Dinamo Dresden team. But if you could have combined East and West Germany in that time, could we say maybe one or two more World Cups would have been achieved in that time? I think so. Well, think about it this way. They were the runners-up in 66, they were the runners-up in 82, and they were the runners-up in 86. So pick one of those, pick two of those, and give them to a combined West and East Germany team, and there's a chance they have six World Cups right now. Let's take 66 because I think it was still a fluke that somehow England won a World Cup. I think that's a fluke, and I think uh, it's just like Joe Hart. Uh, we have to detract from it. I don't think it's real. I think it's. I think it was a fake. I think the VAR at, back in that time was not good, and I think it was a highway robbery. Yeah, I'll go with that. Yeah, yeah. VAR should have been on display. The you know the goal line technology wasn't up to par back then. So could we really give uh, England the win for that? There there seemed to be controversy about the ball crossing the line. So just yeah. putting it up. No, you're not. It. You're not wrong, sir. You're not wrong. But to just to come back from that detour, because I did think it was worth, um, I did think it was worth taking that detour. And if you ever get a chance, um, it, it it's interesting to look back into those, um, to even to those '30s teams. They the one in '34 that went that went third place in the World Cup, and '38 they were in the first round. I mean, again, not a lot because if you even look at that, most of the soldiers, most of those players that played for those Nazi Germany teams actually survived the war. And I was actually expecting to see a lot more of them not survive the war, but actually the coach of their 34 team was actually, um, actually died in a Soviet, um, detention camp about four years later. So just, I just sort of, it, it doesn't, again, it's a detour, but just for people to get historical reference on and the, the history of football is indeed fascinating, but bringing yeah. it sort of back to present day. Yep. I would say that 2014 team was the peak German team in this regard. I think they, they more than maybe any other group, looked so much more, and this is saying a lot because there have been a lot of great German teams, they looked so much the collective, and their 7-1 against Brazil, and their grind out against Argentina... I feel like it was a, I feel like it was a culmination of years and years of building, years and years of introspection, and eventually, you know, eventually the buildup of the Bundesliga during that time that led to this sort of moment in 2014 where Germany, for one game, played maybe the best game of football any team has ever played. Uh, I, I like where your head's at, but I also like to remind people that I, Mr. Neymar didn't play in that game, by the way. Yes, but still, I, I, I get that, but for what it was, it was maybe the it best 15-minute stretch any team has ever put together, ever. 
I, I will be very, very honest with people. When I watched that game live, and it was, what was it? It was like 4 or 5 nothing after the 30th minute. Yeah. I, I was shell-shocked, right? I'm sitting there, and I'm, I am completely baffled. I do not understand how this is happening, right? Like, this is something we've never seen before. And this is in Brazil, Mike, too. I think a lot of people forget that. This was in Brazil. And the systematic beatdown of Brazil in a semifinal of a World Cup that was the craziest and also most exciting things I think I've ever seen in a World Cup was the 7-1 defeat. But I do, sometimes I do, you got to also take it with a grain of salt a little bit that there was no Neymar. I don't think Neymar would have stopped them from winning the game by any stretch of the imagination. I think this German team was destined to win the World Cup. But I definitely believe, I definitely believe, this is just my feeling, I think it would have been closer than it ended up being. But 7-1, it, it was probably the biggest biggest win, I think, in the history of the World Cup. I mean, from the caliber of teams, right? From what our expectations are of each team. Has there ever been a more embarrassing defeat for a home nation? Um, no, there has not. And um, I will say that if we go through that again, we go through their um, their run during the 2014 World Cup. And um, let's see, let's get them. Here we go. They got the group of death, as we talked about with the United States. They got Germany, Portugal, Germany, Portugal, the United States, and Ghana. They got through that group. And they end up getting uh, Algeria in the first round, the, the uh, round of 16. They won on... They won an extra time, actually. Algeria sort of parked the bus on them a bit. They beat France 1-0. They beat Germany 7-1. And then they beat Argentina in extra time 1-0 in what will probably be Messi's best chance ever at actually winning the World Cup. Yeah. So, and by the way, if you're if you're wondering why I'm kind of stammering a little bit, right now it's May 5th, and we're just watching uh, Southampton give up an own goal to keep West Bromwich in uh, contention for staying up. Just a Ooh. fascinating day in... I'm, I'm watching League 3 football. Yes. And Rochdale is up one to nothing over Charlton Athletic. It, and with yeah. this result standing right now, they will be staying in the third division and not relegated. It, it, and Charlton I, it, Athletic will not be playing for promotion. Yes. It was the last kick of the game, too. Like, the ref gave two extra minutes on. It was just the last kick of the game. just And Everton with nothing to play for. But um, going through all that. Um, yeah. Let's talk about this year. There, in my mind, and you can, you can correct me if you don't, uh, if you think I'm wrong, I think there are two favorites to win this World Cup. And they're usually the two favorites that you always have, which are Brazil and Germany. Whichever order you want to put them in is up to you. Yep. I tend to think that Germany has a slight problem in that I don't think they know, like they did in 2014, who their best 11 are. I think Brazil does. I think Brazil is pretty clear on who they're going to play. I don't think there's really any... Um, trepidation about that. I think they know who their best 14, 15 are. 
And I think Germany, to an extent, has the same problem that France has, in that France has too many players, and they have to figure out who to play and where to play them. Although, I give Germany an edge in the sense that Germany don't have any real obvious holes. But just sort of talk about Germany this year and what you sort of see as their path in the sense of what's their best lineup they can put forward. Who do you see as sort of the keys to this team winning the World Cup? Anybody you see whose time has passed? Anybody you see who's up and coming who they sh- who should definitely get a look? Just sort of an overview of this 2018 uh, German squad. I think this World Cup is going to be a big proponent of the the coming out party of Timo Werner. He plays for RB Leipzig. He was with uh, uh, Stuttgart a few years ago and makes the move up here. He's been very, very good in the Bundesliga. He's going to be the number nine, the quote-unquote number nine. I think that's going to be the, the guy you look out for. Uh, Leroy Sané of Manchester City, I think this is a very, very big opportunity with Lars Stindl getting injured. Uh, maybe we'll see him play in the uh, more advanced role, maybe in that you know playmaker role that Lars would have been doing off the bench because Lars Stindl actually, I think, suffered a broken foot or a foot injury that will rule him out for the World Cup. Uh, there's him, Leon Goretzka, Schalke. He's a tremendous footballer. I mentioned him a little bit earlier. Uh, this team, defensively, I think is just... I just don't have enough good things to say about them. You know, you talk about Joshua Kimmich, who scored two goals for Bayern Munich in the semifinals against Bayern Munich. He's 23 years old, uh, and he's on his way to being pretty much the next Philip Lahm. Jonas Hector, who plays for Cologne, will keep out a guy named Philip Max. Uh, he plays left back for Augsburg. He's one of the best full left backs in the Bundesliga. He's got the most assists in the league. And Jonas Hector, who plays for a relegation team, Cologne, who will be playing in the second division, will be playing left back. That's how good he is. Yeah, and obviously, and, and he signed an extension. He did. He's a one-club man. He's a one-club man. So did uh, uh, Timo Horn, who also is a goalkeeper, who is going to be up for possibility of being in this World Cup squad as well. Uh, he signed an extension as well, uh, which just shows you the loyalty there is to some clubs. I mean, it's a club and it's a place that they attract a lot of great people. They have 100,000-plus members in their, you know, in their club, which is one of the highest in Germany itself. They have a great defense. You have a Manuel Neuer, you have Mark Terstegen, who could be the starting goalkeeper. I think you should lean towards Terstegen. He's played all season. I think he deserves it. And look at what Barcelona have achieved so far this season. I think he deserves to be in that situation. Midfield. I mean, everybody knows what Germany's midfield is. I mean, it's stacked. I mean, it's absolutely stacked. The problem is, as you mentioned, and this is the big issue, they have too many options in midfield, and I think that's what hurt it, that hurt Mr. Uh, Joachim Lowe in the 2014 World Cup is that he kept on tinkering. Remember, he, he's a tinkerer, and he did it in 2016 as well, which saw him get eliminated in the semifinals, is that he likes to tinker with his team, and it ended up seeing them get eliminated. He's a tinkerer sometimes, and sometimes having so many good players and wanting to play certain players for certain matches, and you have players that are playing game in and game out in a World Cup or a European Championship, and they have the reps, and you have players that haven't played in six weeks, and they're you, you're going to play in this game, you're going to be an asset for this game. Lowe does that way too often, and it's hurt Germany, and that's why 
his success rate has been only one World Cup, and he hasn't added a European Championship like a Vincent Del. Uh, Vincent Bose did for uh, Spain, where he won three in a row, three major tournaments in a row. But the big key for them is Timo Werner. If Timo Werner plays as the number nine we expect him to be, if he can get five goals in this World Cup, Germany are probably going to win the World Cup. And what does Mario Gomez bring to the table? Yeah, German, he's back in goal-scoring form. He returns to his boyhood club. He scored, I believe, eight goals since his return at the end of January. He's back in the goal scoring. He scored two goals today. He's back, baby. And if he can come off the bench and be that guy with Sandro Wagner, it could be a very scary proposition. Well, yeah, and just to accentuate your midfield point, uh, the following players are eligible for selection for um, Joachim Lowe's Germany. Tony Kroos, Sammy Kadira, Julian Draxler, E.K. Gundawan, Sebastian Rudy, Leon Goretzka, Julian Brandt, Leroy Sané, Mesut Ozil, Emery Can, Mario Götze, if you want to consider him a midfielder. That's a lot of midfield talent. And Did you mention the right? It, yeah, just one sec, though. It raises the question, how does Germany end up playing in this? Now, describe a little bit how Germany played in 14, formationally, and how they may have to change that in 2018. I don't think, I, I think Lowe is so, like, these are my tactics. We're going to stay with these tactics. He plays a 4-2-3-1. I mean, that's his basic formation. It's the same as Jose Mourinho, but he plays with a more attacking emphasis. He's got a natural 10, which is always going to be measured. So uh, you can't really play with more than one striker because, limitedly, uh, Timo Werner's the best one. Mario, you know, Mario Gomez is phenomenal, but he isn't good enough to be starting at a World Cup for a team that should be you know, winning a World Cup. So they'll play the 4-2-3-1. You could make variations to a 4-3-3 to accommodate more midfield players against, you know, better teams like a France and obviously a Brazil to, you know, nullify their great attacking players. But it's going to be a 4-2-3-1. He's really, really stringent with that formation, and he's been a big component of that formation for the last eight years. And I'm curious because, again, Ozil would play in the, play in the ten. Draxler yep. could play as a 10 or as a wing. Yep. Um, Leroy Sané is a pretty much a wing player. Kroos would play. Kroos has to play, and he would play in that back two. He'd play in that back two, probably with um, Gundogan, right? I would think him and Gundogan or him and Kadira. I think it would be Goretzka. Or, I, think, I think Goretzka is so highly valued. You know, he's such a box-to-box. He's an eight. He can play the box-to-box. He can score from midfield as well. I think Goretzka is going to be that guy that does the partnership with Tony Kroos. I really yeah. believe that. Because he's got the legs, he's got the stamina, and he's proven it all season Jalka that he can be that mobile midfielder in a midfield too. And you look through the rest of their team. They're going to be good at, they're good at goalkeeper, obviously. They're more than solid in the back. My issue is... I don't think they're going to have the, uh, uh, and it may have been an issue in 14, but they were just so powerful in their midfield that they were able to just overcome teams. I'm not the biggest fan of their, um, of their forwards. Thomas Muller's off, uh, obviously a good player, but he's playing around Robert Lewandowski. It makes him, it gives, it makes his job easier when he's playing with Lewandowski. Muller in this case would be playing with, up there alone, pretty much. You'd have Werner in there coming off the bench, or Gomez coming off the bench, or Sandro Wagner coming off the bench. 
it's not the it's not the most I would say solid group of strikers, and it's going to force Germany to rely on their midfield to create a lot of chances. Mm-hmm. That might be my one concern. I mean, they can overcome it, but I would say that's my one concern. I, I the one thing with Mueller is that I don't see him playing as a striker for four low, just based on what I've seen so far from Germany and Timo Werner's upside on the pace and everything. He's one of the fastest players in the world, obviously, and his technical ability is very, very top class. I mean, especially when you look at RB Leipzig's run in the Europa League, yeah. he was absolutely blitzing teams. Uh, I think Mueller will play on that right-hand side that he's kind of been occupying this season when uh, Ian Robin's been injured for uh, Bayern Munich. I think he'll be on that right-hand side. As you know, with Traxler is a PSG fan. Lowe has a big fatuation with him, right? He made him captain of the 2017 uh, Confederations Cup. There's a fatuation there. I think Leroy Sané should be playing based on what City have accomplished this season. But we know Lowe has his favorites, and that's why Mario Gomez, at 32 years old, are going. I think he's, uh, yeah, he's going to be 32 or 34 going into this World Cup between those two ages. That should tell you he has his favorites, and he will rely on his favorites. Because that's what he is. He he's going to hang on those favorites, and it may be the detriment to him. Yeah, and I would say that just from what I've seen of Draxler watching him all year, there's games where he looks like one of the best twenty players on earth, and then there's games where he's just sort of he's just sort of there. And I'm not a I'm not I'm not the biggest Leroy Sané fan, and that I think you saw it against Liverpool. I think he was mostly ineffective. I think he was. Too many times he was looking to get to the, he was looking to get out wide and cross as opposed to sort of stepping in and trying to make something happen. But obviously, again, the spine of that German team is solid. I mean, there's no doubt about that. So let me ask you two questions. And they're sort of if questions. Germany wins the World Cup if? If Timo Werner has an effective campaign like Thomas Müller had in 2010. If you have a striker that scores goals or you have a playmaker that has a huge contribution, you will go on to win the World Cup. Because defensively, we looked at their back line. They have Bayern Munich's back line with Jonas Hector, who's a very, very solid defender and one of the most respected players in the Bundesliga. They have one of the best midfields in the world, which can be a problem because it's a riches and maybe Lowe makes some promises and he plays players that shouldn't be playing. He'll rotate that team to make sure everybody gets a little love from 1 to 23. Goalkeeping, I think Mark Ter Stegen should be the guy. But if Timo Werner has an impact of a great significance of five goals or more, they go on to win the World Cup. Because in 2014, they didn't have an out-and-out striker and they barely won the World Cup. This year, four years later, they finally have produced the guy that they see as the next Mirasa Klosa, and if he has that breakout tournament, they go on and win the World Cup. Germany loses the World Cup if... Low tinkers too much, just like the 2016 European Championships. He likes to tinker. He likes to make changes. You can rotate in the group stage, but once you get out of that group stage, you need to have your horses ready for that knockout stage. You need to be dependent on at least eight to nine guys, those are my nine guys. You can rotate one or two players to give them some freshness and give them some rest. But at the end of the day, going into that round of 16, you need to know these are my 11 players that are going to lead me to the promised land. 
And if we're playing in a final, I want these 11 players. He needs to know that heading into the knockout stage of the World Cup. If he doesn't know that, as you mentioned earlier, Brazil know what their best 11 is. France might know what their best 11 is. And those teams will be favorites to compete with them and possibly knock them out. And maybe possibly Belgium if they can piece it together. But I think their management is what will be their downfall. Perfect. So, Tyler Dunn, thank you for coming on. Um, plug your Twitter, plug your um, plug your podcast, and anything else you may or may not be working on. All right, you guys can uh, check out the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. It's called Banter FC. Uh, look for Marijuana Fellaini as the most interesting man in the world. That should tell you everything you need to know about the podcast and how we view the thing, how we view football. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at tdunfooty, D-U-N-N-E, footy. Uh, we'd love to have a good time and love a good conversation. I have no problem with criticizing my own team, but I also have a very fun time of making sure everybody knows that Liverpool's fluky uh, Champions League run is a fluke, and Jurgen Klopp is not the second-best manager in the world. That is a fact. And anybody that loves to have a good conversation and loves to have a good banter, just come on over. We love to have a good time. Uh, I'll be on uh, United in Focus. It's a uh, video podcast and podcast by Manchester United, where one guy loves to fondle Jose Mourinho's uh, testicular uh, fortitude, and the rest of us try to bring him back into line and tell him that he is not as good as he thinks he is. Progress is happening, but it isn't the progress you want. And just check out all of our podcasts around Mondays and Wednesdays. We're always having a good time. We try to cover all the best leagues in the world, and we like to do MLS as well. So if you're looking for something different and you're looking for a uh, conversation that will make you laugh, check out Banter FC. Tyler Dunn, thank you for coming on. And for Tyler Dunn, this has been uh, your World Cup podcast host, Mark Damon, saying au revoir for now. Thank you for listening to the World Cup Project. Our next episode will feature PSG Talk contributor Danielle Prigvaha and our discussion about the state of football in Africa. The theme for the World Cup Project is provided by the Dutch supergroup Orgel Vretten, whose fantastic music you can listen to on iTunes and Spotify. This show is brought to you by PSG Talk, the number one news and opinion site for all things Paris Saint-Germain in English. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for more information on upcoming World Cup Project episodes. And as always, this is your host, Mark Damon, saying once again, au revoir for now. <laughs>